You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, Twelve Lectures, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is the second lecture, given in Dornach on the 6th of May, 1923, entitled The Mystery of the Head and of the Lower Human Being. When we look at a phenomenon like that we were speaking of yesterday, We see clearly that in the last third of the 19th century there was not only the rise of materialism but also of something which was basically worse, a certain insecurity and instability in those thinkers who couldn't go all the way with materialism. In the last third of the 19th century we find the following elements. We find that those people who were really materialistic in their attitude already had a certain inner assurance. We only need to take a look at those people who, out of a position of knowledge and power, declared the findings of natural science far superior and proceeded to establish a whole worldview thereon. They presented this with enormous aplomb. And it wasn't so much the content of what they said as the certainty with which they presented it that at the time recruited so many followers to materialism. In contrast, all those who could only uphold the spiritual in the form of abstract ideas felt as insecure as did Fisher, about whom I spoke yesterday. They could only hold on to the spiritual by saying, behind the phenomena of the sensory world, ideas are at work. But they could only present these ideas abstractly. They couldn't show people the real spiritual life behind these ideas. Indeed, as these abstract ideas didn't have the power to guide them, they weren't able to speak about real spiritual life. And so, as early as the 1890s, there was nothing left in public life of the idealism that had still been important in the first half of the 19th century, where it was represented by only a few people as I mentioned in the penultimate issue of title, The Gertianum, until by the turn of the century it had all but disappeared. It's characteristic that at the start of the last third of the 19th century, a book was published that became very influential, titled History of Materialism by Friedrich Albert Lange. This book made a deep impression at the time, appearing in 1866 and so ushering in the last third of the 19th century. We can understand this history of materialism as a symptom of the soul condition humanity was then in the process of developing. Now, what does this book say? Friedrich Albert Lange describes roughly how human beings couldn't develop a more reasonable worldview than materialism, and if they wanted to avoid being victims of illusion, there was no other possible view than to declare atomistic matter as the basis of all knowledge. So we have to take this atomic world of matter spread out in space as the basis of reality. Friedrich Albert Lange noticed, however, that we have to develop concepts of this world 
and that these concepts or ideas are not the same as what exists in atoms. But, he said, now concepts are a fiction, a play on words, and he coined the phrase conceptual poetry. So, human beings produce these fictions as needed. However, there is the problem that humans don't each produce their own fiction, but that they tend to produce collective concepts, which everyone understands. But for him the concepts are fiction, and only atomic matter scattered throughout space is real. So, you see, this is crass materialism, which declares that anything going beyond materialism is just fiction. We could say that at least he has a consistent point of view. Unfortunately, that's not the case in Lange's book. If only he'd gone as far as I've just said, then he'd be a consistent materialist. Fine. As I said yesterday, we can't refute materialism if it's consistent. And if someone has no access to the spiritual world, and this is surely true of Lange, then they basically have no choice but to establish materialism as the only valid worldview. But Lange doesn't do this. Instead, he says something else, which runs like a thread through all the arguments in his book. He says that it's right to assume that the material atomic world is the real world. But when you assert this, when you say that the material atomic world is at work in space, subdivided into hydrogen, nitrogen, which combine in certain ways, and so on, when these ideas are developed in the brain, then that is ultimately also conceptual poetry. Thus materialism, which we necessarily have to endorse, is itself really only an idealism, just as the atomic world is itself a fiction. We can express what Lange presents in his world-famous book in a much simpler way, in a much simpler image. This is namely the well-known personality of Munchausen, who pulls himself out of the mire by his own hair. The idealist pulls himself out of the mire and into materialism by his own idealistic hair. So we see that one of the most world-famous works at the beginning of the last third of the 19th century is just plain ordinary nonsense. We really can't call it anything else but nonsense. If this title, History of Materialism, were materialistic, then it would at least be something new. But that it's a fictional materialism, that's just nonsense. So what was going on in the last third of the 19th century which had such success with natural science? We have to look at the historical facts. What's going on? Lange's book becomes world famous as it's translated into all the leading languages of the time and the most distinguished enlightened minds hailed it as a liberating work. You may know the poem by Christian Morgenstern in its eurythmic form, where the one sound bim flies over bam and joins up with bum. Quote, he's a good Christian, but that's just it. Close quote. You have to remember all those people who base their thinking on Lange and who then provided the basis for our whole official worldview. These were all enlightened thinkers, at least for the last third of the 19th century. And those who were just the audience for all this didn't notice anything amiss. And so, for those issues which touch on the deepest questions of humanity, they were all fast asleep. 
you will probably say this is an exaggeration, but it's not an exaggeration. No, it's more of an understatement when I speak of how deeply asleep all those people were with regard to the greatest questions of spiritual life. What I have said isn't exaggerated, rather, in this case, public opinion is completely deficient. If we want to develop a healthy sense for a future spiritual life, then we have to face up squarely to these difficult facts as I've just described them. Because through what happened then, humanity's interest in the spiritual world was cut off. People were cut off from spiritual development. And subsequently, the less someone touched on spiritual problems, the more people regarded them as a great scientist. That was the situation at the turn of the century. This is the situation that what was to become anthroposophy was faced with. And this is how we have to understand the task of anthroposophy. We have to understand it as having to work from the ground up and not building on previous work in the one or the other direction. There is nothing there. And so we have to understand the essence of anthroposophy from the ground up. For if we do this, we'll find that the facts that exist through the work of natural science are extremely useful for anthroposophic research. And indeed, these scientific facts will only be properly understood through anthroposophic research. This is the way we have to look at the situation. However, for this to happen, some of humanity must resolve to transform intellectualism into the spiritual. Of course, those people who align themselves with the anthroposophic movement are all filled with a certain impulse, a certain disposition for the spiritual world. But only very few of them want to be bothered with bringing the contemporary world of ideas into the spiritual. Many people want to exclude the world of ideas and to absorb anthroposophy as a kind of comfort for the soul. But this won't be enough to give anthroposophy the power of impulse it needs for the life of the mind. You see, what we need here is has to be grasped individually and practically, and so today I want to give you an individual and practical example. I have often said that what you have today as a head on your shoulders is the transformed organism of your past life, except that you have to imagine that in this organism of your last life, the head isn't there. Truly, we have to eliminate the head from what we were in our past life. It dissolves into space. And the rest of the organism becomes the head in the next life. Then the organism of that life becomes the head of the next earthly life, and so on. Now someone would say, but it wasn't only my head that was buried at the end of my last life, the rest of my organism was buried too. It didn't have the opportunity to evolve into the head for my present earthly life. Now, that's a very superficial understanding. There you're not looking at your head or at the rest of the organism. You're only looking at the physical matter which fills your head today. And this matter transforms itself in the course of earthly life approximately every seven years. What your body has today as matter didn't exist eight years ago. What goes through earthly life is the invisible, supersensible form. Of course, you've incorporated the material, which now fills out your head, in this earthly life. But the form, the supersensible forces, which today round out the eyes and turn up the nose, these are the same forces 
which formed your arms and legs and the rest of the organism in your last earthly life. That other people can see you with their physical senses is due to the fact that matter, which has no form of its own, fills out your form. It's not matter which gives you your form. When you eat salt, it still wants to be crystalline. It doesn't want to be in the shape of a nose or an eye. That you have the form you have as a human being is not due to matter, although it is the reason for your being visible. But the present form of your head has been through a metamorphosis originating in the form of your organism without the head in your last earthly life. Because of this, however, your head was in a very advantageous situation and was well treated by the cosmos. Therefore the head appears first in its nearly finished form in the embryo. Think of it, in the embryo the head is practically finished, while the rest of the organism almost hangs off it like a secondary organ. This rest still has to be fashioned from the outside and looks awful in comparison to the fully developed human form, while the head is beautifully made from the beginning. For someone who only values the fully grown human being, however, the head of the embryo has a repugnant aspect, but really it's very well formed. This is because it brings with it some of its formative forces from an earlier life. The head has been worked on between death and a new birth, as I've described in the lectures on cosmology, religion and philosophy, some time ago in the Gertianum. This work between death and a new birth has to do with the development of the formative forces of the human head. This is the reason why, in relation to the cosmos, the human head is extraordinarily well developed. The human head actually contains the material image of the spirit, soul, and body of that person. Thus, when we look at the head, we then have the interaction of spirit, soul, and body in a material way, insofar as they appear in material form. We could say that for the human head, spirit, soul, and body are physical. The secret of the human head is that here the spirit appears in physical form, and we can demonstrate this materially in the miracle of the brain. This miraculous structure is an image of the spirit. Just as sealing wax takes the impression of the signet ring, so in the head we have spirit, soul, and body in material form. For the human metabolic limb system, we can say that everything is physically present. The legs, these two columns, don't have any of the miraculous nature of the human head. They have yet to go through this metamorphosis. They will appear as the lower jaw, with all its wonderful functions and mobility in the next earthly life, while after the transformation the arms appear in the upper jaw and so on. In the musculoskeletal system, though the arms have adapted to the upright posture, the opposite is true. There spirit, soul and body are spiritual. There, spirit, soul, and body are completely spiritual. We could almost say that the appearance of the human being in relation to the legs and all that is associated with them isn't the true one. This will all reveal itself in its true material form in the next life, when it's become the head. Now, it's just at the beginning and 
how it now appears isn't really its essential form. Its essence is what it becomes when it's directed by the will. Humans transform their locomotor system into will in movement, dynamics, statics. This part of the human being is spiritually intangible, supersensible. The head of every material being is an image of the spiritual, and the spirit itself appears there in matter. Whereas in the locomotor system, the body is hardly physical. If we want to find the meaning of the whole of the locomotor system, we have to explore how much the physical reveals of the spiritual. Thus, we can say that the great mystery of the head is that spirit, soul, and body are physical. And the great mystery of the lower part of the human being is that spirit, soul, and body are spiritual. The Old Testament knew from instinctive clairvoyance much more about these things than modern humanity. Modern humanity overestimates the head. I've already discussed this from various perspectives. In the Old Testament, you'll never find the illusory view that the brain concocts dreams. There it says that Jehovah tormented someone in their sleep in relation to their kidneys. In those days they knew that what appears in dreams is from the metabolic system. They didn't describe everything to the head. Why do people attribute everything to the head these days? I have to say it's because no one believes in the spirit, and so they don't look at that part of the human being where even the body's still spiritual. They don't look at the lower human being, because they're not proud of it. So they look there, where even the spirit is physical material. They look at the head. They're proud of it, because here spirit becomes material, physical. Overestimating the head, that's materialism. People only want matter, and they only want the spirit as matter. This is the reason we find the head described in the way it is in our modern physiological scientific works because they only want spirit in a material way. And this is true, but only in the head. But of course they know nothing of the fact that before this head could bring down the spirit into its material, physical image form, it had to go through this whole life between death and a new birth. And that in order for this material image of the human spirit to appear in the form of the head, it had first to go through a long spiritual development. This material miracle of the human brain is the result of a wonderful spiritual development. But people only want to look at the material, only want to accept the spirit in its material form. Now, my dear friends, we should really pay attention. Even if we're over 14, we can still pay attention. In the human being, we have a region up here that is completely physical, and a region down here that is completely spiritual. However, shouldn't there be an area in the middle which is neither completely physical nor completely spiritual, that is, both or neither? In the middle there must be a neutral point where the spiritual flows into the physical and the physical into the spiritual, a place where neither of them are dominant, where the human being is neither dependent on the upper region nor on the lower a place somewhere in the middle, where we are independent of both. It is important to understand this point, 
which must be located in the middle of the human being in our chest area. Imagine that you have a pair of scales. Imagine that you have a load on the one side and balancing weights on the other. Now you balance it out. If you put more weight on the one side, then it goes down, and the same on the other side. Also, you can't remove anything without disturbing the balance. So, you see, in the middle there's a point, a neutral point. You can add as much as you like to this point. You won't change the balance of the scales. You could even take hold of the scales themselves here, and if you avoid creating an imbalance by swinging them around, then you can move them any which way without disturbing the balance. You can balance the scales while you are actually moving them around. This is a point which doesn't affect the whole system of the scales, a point of balance. You can practically do with it what you like. It doesn't change anything in the functioning of the scales. For example, someone puts a load on here and weights on the other side. Now it occurs to him that the arm of the scales is made of iron, which he doesn't like, so he wants to have it in gold. Now he only needs to expand the midpoint somewhat, even though it's a mathematical point, you can still expand it a bit. You could put gold in the fulcrum, if you so wished, and it wouldn't change the balance at all. If you put the gold somewhere else, for example outside the midpoint, then the balance changes. Otherwise, even if someone wanted to make a hollow space in the fulcrum and put meat in it, that wouldn't change the balance either. Someone else would prefer butter, which then melts in the sun, but the balance of the scales is not affected. In short, this point is completely independent of the whole system of the scales. You can't affect it. It's the same with the point which lies as a balance in the middle between the physical and the spiritual. This point is dependent neither on the physical nor on the spiritual. Human beings can make of this point whatever they want. If you think that humans are merely physical beings and everything is just a result of cause and effect, then you won't find this point. Or if you think that humans are merely spiritual beings and everything is determined by the divine worlds, then here too, there is nothing you can do about it, as humans just have to do what the gods have decided. But if we know that above a certain point of balance, humans are determined by the gods, and below it by the material world, then we see that with this one point, which we can trace to the middle of the human being, we can do whatever we want in the world out of our own free will. If you then have this threefold human constitution, you can recognize in the center the scientifically proven fact of human freedom. We can safely say that it's as scientific as the solution to any mathematical equation or derivative. It's something that can be treated with the strictest rules of science. Freedom is the result of a genuine knowledge of the human constitution, because in human beings, there's a point which is as independent of the upper part and of the lower part of their constitution as the pivotal point of the scales is independent of the load to the right and left of it. You can carry the scales around with you. You can even replace this point, as I said earlier, with anything you want. And you can find a point in the human being where natural causality, cause and effect, ceases and where the correlation with the heavens the determination through the spiritual world also ceases and where there is a balance between the two. 
here in the pivotal point of human nature, is the guarantee of human freedom. And we can prove it in the strict scientific sense with a true physiology and a true psychology, but not, of course, with those we have today, which, as I have already shown, become completely dilettantish in psychoanalysis. This is something that should make people think. You can take all of literature and philosophy and read everywhere on the issue, but nobody really gets to grips with the problem of freedom. Why is this? It's because nobody has a true concept of the human being. This is only possible today through anthroposophy. And the fact that nobody can really deal with the problem of freedom refers back to what I was talking about, albeit in a humorous fashion, yesterday. What I was trying to show yesterday, with the help of what was meant to be a humorous novel, I could have also presented in a serious manner. It is important to treat these things earnestly if we want to be serious about anthroposophy. Then it's really a question of understanding actual realities and applying them in the appropriate way. And if you don't really know whether you should acknowledge the spiritual when you only know spirit in abstract ideas, or should you endorse materialism, then you would become a humorist like Fisher. And like Fisher, you would develop a humorous world system, the Qataral system. Of course, we can laugh about it. But we can't say with absolute certainty that the world wasn't created by a, quote, divine sneeze, close quote. Here he isn't using the material world in the right way. That's the whole point. We have to use the material in the right way. Whether we want to understand it or to apply it, we have to use it in the right way. Yesterday I gave you an example in the way Fisher sees the world and how he creates a whole world system out of this Qatar, as if it were an imperative, and overpowering reality. We don't do this in anthroposophy. I acted as if I had a cold yesterday, coughing occasionally, but that was only as an illustration, and not to form the basis of a whole philosophy. If you stagger helplessly from a Qataral materialism to a spirit consisting only of ideas, then you will end up talking about being seduced by the great god Influenza. This is impossible in anthroposophy. Here we promote a remedy for flu so as not to be tempted to make up a whole myth of original sin around the great god Influenza. It's a case of understanding the material world in the right way and assigning it to its proper place. Things have to change enormously. Someone with a mind like Fisher in the last third of the 19th century was angry, coughing and sneezing and ended up inventing the charade about the great god Influenza. As an anthroposophist, you would try to cure the flu with our remedy, which is quite effective. This shows you what a difference it makes when you treat the material from a spiritual point of view. However, the contemporary cognitive view of the head shows that in the modern philosophy of the world there is a deep sympathy with materialism. And the fact that nobody can really come to an understanding of the problem of freedom shows that they don't know that impulses from two different worlds are at work on the upper and on the lower human being respectively. Those minds that in years gone by focused on the upper part found that humans can't be free as everything is preordained by the spiritual world. All those who study humanity today ascribe everything to a simple natural causality, 
From both points of view, human beings cannot be free. Spiritual causality is valid for the head and natural causality for the metabolic limb system. In between there lies the rhythmic organization, which is rhythmic because here everything balances out rhythmically. In the rhythmic organization there is something which is determined neither by the spiritual nor the material, is neither preordained nor the result of cause and effect, and is the point from which the freedom impulse originates. You see how in such a practical way we can show how anthroposophy casts light on the deepest problems of humanity. In my book titled Riddles of the Soul, I presented the nature of the human being as three-membered, the nerve sense system, the rhythmic system, and the metabolic limb system. At the same time, this referred back to the title Philosophy of Freedom, in which freedom is simply presented as a fact. This reference to freedom as a fact was meant as follows. If you see human beings in their true essence as having a three-membered organization, then you can arrive at a scientifically exact description of human freedom. This would be the same process as you would use to arrive at a description of the pivotal point of a set of scales or of any system of forces, a point which is independent of the interaction of the forces in the system. But you would also see how today you can look wherever you want. Nowhere will you find any truth about these things. So based on all these inadequate concepts, which are wholly unrelated to the true nature of human organization, we educate our children and develop moral, religious and social systems. Then it's no surprise when these social systems produce such monstrous thinking as was described by Leinhaus in the recent title Gertianum. There, someone had to admit that the ideas associated with Marxism had disproved themselves in real life, but that wasn't really important. We would have to wait until someone could prove it scientifically. Really, you can only quote these words in inverted commas exactly as the source said then, because if you think them through for yourself, your head threatens to explode. Not only does a mill wheel start turning in your brain, you feel as if your head will burst when you try to think something like that through. Therefore, it's important to not just move in anthroposophic circles and to cold-shoulder all that's going on outside, but to have an interest for how chaotic all our contemporary thinking is and all that has developed from it in the outside world. The End of Lecture 2